Sarah. Hi, Allison. So, a month ago, before mm-hmm. the first rounds of the presidential elections here in France, <laughs> right? We should we should be in the throes of an exciting campaign. We should, by mm. rights. But things are a bit different. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. We have a war now on the edge of the EU in Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Incumbent Emmanuel Macron, who finally launched his campaign very recently, is more focused on that than the election itself. Yeah, yeah. He's one of 12 candidates, including four women, but the, the campaign has been muted at best. Macron announced his candidacy in a low-key letter to the French, and candidates are struggling to figure out how to debate him while still respecting his position as a wartime president. And there are virtually no debates, mm-hmm. and the whole situation would seem to have given Macron an advantage in the polls, at least. He's pulled way ahead of his main rival, Marine Le Pen, the leader of the hard-right national rally. Yeah, and the other candidates who have all been campaigning since January, I mean, even the end of last year, all this in the midst of the COVID pandemic, of course, they're all having to shift strategies because of the war. Campaign rallies have been muted. I mean, some have even turned their their meetings into fundraisers for Ukraine. Yeah, and then some candidates have clearly been put in a rather awkward position over their historical support, at least for Russia and Putin in particular. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we're seeing this the far left, the far right. So Jean-Luc Mélenchon, Marine Le Pen and Éric Zemmour. Macron has said that he won't be taking part in debates with the other candidates, at least not before the first round of the election on the 10th of April. Yeah, and the excuse is that, right, he has more important Mm. business at hand. I mean, kind of understandable. Plus, it is difficult, let's be honest, to have a meaningful debate with 11 other candidates. Uh, But Macron hasn't said that much about his program. Maybe mm. that is a bit a bit more worrying. Yeah. It hasn't even been officially presented. Yeah, I mean, even today, we still have really no details. There are concerns that this campaign is being depoliticized, as it's being called. I mean, domestic issues are being sidelined by the war. I mean, things like energy prices, which are going through the roof, especially gas and oil. Yeah, petrol prices are at their highest for decades now. Remember, it was diesel price hikes that kicked off the Yellow Vest protest movement Mm -hmm. in late uh, 2018, which really marked those early days of Macron's term. Yeah, yeah. And then no one's talking much about health care. And yet we may not be out of the woods, probably not, with COVID. No, who knows? Mm -hmm. Uh, Who knows what will happen? And all of this is allowing Macron, at least for now, to ride high in the polls. But it might come back to bite him because even if he does win, there are legislative elections two months later in June. And anger over this lack of debate, well, could come back to haunt him. Mes chers compatriotes, il n'est plus temps de réformer la France, mais de la sauver. C'est pourquoi j'ai décidé de me présenter à l'élection présidentielle. Rejoignez-moi, dressez-vous. So there he is, one of the 12 presidential candidates, the maverick, unashamedly xenophobic, anti-Islam writer and political pundit, Eric Zemmour. Yeah, the man who defends the great replacement theory. This is the idea that French people read white Christian are being replaced by immigrants. And he's also been convicted for hate speech, Mm -hmm. Sarah. And like we mentioned, he's taken a bit of a knock because of the Russia-Ukraine crisis. He's been very supportive of 
Vladimir Putin, and he is very anti-NATO, positions which are now becoming rather hard to defend. Yeah, but he's still very much up there in the running, in third or fourth position, depending on the polls, to the dismay of many. And one of his trademarks is twisting French history to put a positive spin on some of France's more difficult moments, for example, praising colonialism. Yeah, or claiming that the Vichy regime, the one that collaborated with the Nazis, in fact, protected French Jews. Well, some people Mm. will always believe what they want to believe, won't they? And he does have a way with words, which partly explains his popularity. Cecil Aldi is a semiologist, and she's been dissecting Zemmour's many books and speeches, looking at the way that he structures his discourse and how all of that has helped him advance his political and especially ideological ambitions. She recently published her findings in a short book. It's called La Langue de Zemmour, the language of Zemmour. And one of the things she did was she counted, using very sophisticated software, the number of times that Zemmour uses certain words. And that led her to conclude that Zemmour has a morbid fascination with death, conquest and domination. War is the third most used noun in Zimur's text, which is amazing, considering that he's been chronicling the everyday life of France Mm. in a time of peace, mostly. What it tells me is that his entire worldview is structured around conflict and antagonism, uh, antagonism between the sexes, between peoples, between races, and is one of the very, very few French politician to use the word race with no qualms at all. So in a way, it's quite different, isn't it, from uh, Marine Le Pen, the head of the uh, the hard-right National Rally Party. And she took over from her dad, Jean-Marie Le Pen, and she sort of cleaned up the language, didn't she? And she stopped using words like race, contrary to her dad. And then you have Zemmour kind of putting them back in. Absolutely. It's it's a um, very interesting political moment in France that someone who is really the true spiritual heir of Jean-Marie Le Pen, someone who was ostracized and condemned by the entire political spectrum, is now polling at the third place in the presidential election, has a huge uh, media coverage, and is, as you said, doing the exact opposite of what Marie Le Pen had tried so uh, seriously to do, which is to clean up the vocabulary of the National Front, make it normalized. Yeah, more mainstream. Right, exactly. So she she tried to polish the discourse of the far right, and Zemmour is exactly doing the opposite, which is to radicalize it. And how does he do this? What are his techniques? Yes, because he's not uh, like a Trump kind of stylistic, you know, (laughs) profile. Uh, He does it in much more subtle way, which is to quote others that have used the word race, such as Ernest Renan or General de Gaulle. But of course, when they did, this was like at a moment where race was not the taboo that it is today. So Zemmour has his way of enveloping his rhetoric in tons of literary citations, historical references that are kind of dubious, but kind of caution everything with this appearance of literariness. Hmm. But at the same time, when you look at the detail, it's extremely in your face. It's about uh, the race war in his text. So it's this double, like, caress you on the one hand, hit you in your face in the second part. And why is he doing this then? What's his project? So his project is pretty explicit um, to his credit. And what he wants is to clean up, literally, France of any trace of immigration, 
that would not completely assimilate into French identity, not only to stop immigration, but to rebuke the presence of past immigration waves from North Africa, especially. And when he is defending the Vichy regime for having supposedly quote-unquote, saved French Jews, which is not true. What he's trying to do is to train people to differentiate between people according to their nationality, to justify doing the worst, which is to deport others. You mentioned the Vichy regime. Uh, Marshal uh, Philippe Pétain, who was the, the head of the Vichy regime in, you know, in France 1940, collaborated with the Nazis. And in your book, you refer to this, how Zemmour is sort of stretching out his allegiances within the French political right. So going from, on the one hand, Pétain, right through to Charles de Gaulle, of course, the hero of the liberation in 1944. So trying to sort of recuperate both of those figures. And he's sort of sticking these two guys in the same bag. So that's another of his techniques, actually, is to distort history by circumvolutions that put together things that are opposite. So it's very weird in a way, because on the one hand is creating differences that don't really exist or antagonisms that are suddenly heightened to extreme levels. And on the other, put together in the same bag things that are so opposite in the collective memory, such as Pétain, uh, who represents collaboration with the Nazi regime who addicted a special status for the Jews that prevented them from being employed in any kind of job and prepared for the final solution. And the, on the other hand, General de Gaulle, who represents the resistance and uh, reaffirmation of humanistic values during World War II. You've written quite a lot about the mythology of Frenchness. In what ways is Zemmour contributing to that? How is his writing and his speech making up this sort of mythology of what Frenchness is? Yes, so Zemmour, like many nationalist political uh, representatives, creates a narrative of Frenchness that is most partially an imaginative one. So he creates this grand narrative of what he calls eternal France, a nation that would date back to the Middle Ages, which is not true historically. France was just a bunch of different villages with no unity at the time, but who would be rooted in Christianity and a universalist mission to enlighten the world. Um, so he participates in this narrative and has a very much nostalgic tone to his books, uh, many of which are recitation of the history of France colored by the nostalgia. How would you explain he has become as popular as he is? Well, first, he's been a very well-known journalist or pundit on television for 15 years. He used to have a one-hour show every single day prior to becoming candidate. So there's a name recognition. People know him. Mm. Uh, the second thing is that, as you mentioned, Marine Le Pen has softened the discourse of the National Front or Rassemblement National today. And many people feel they are orphans and they want to go back to this radical far right that says things as they are in their opinion. So the radicality of his candidacy, I think, is an appeal for many people who are extremely angry at the current political system. Yeah, so there's a kind of attraction for transgression in a way. 
Yes, very much like Trump kind of unleashed a lot of inhibitions in political discourse. I think Zimbabwe is appreciated by many for the fact that he is explicit, straightforward, even in his racism. So we've been talking about how Zimbabwe talks. We, we heard him briefly at the start of this segment. But, you know, let's hear a bit more. Here you go. Fascist. Fascist. Alors, moi, fascist. Me, fascist. You're right. Yeah, so this expression, it's kind of become a signature for him. Yeah, it's an old-fashioned expression, Sarah, isn't it? Meaning sort of, so you see, uh, it's so obvious. Yeah, come on. And it's typical of the kind of language Zemo uses, which sort of shuts down all Mm. conversation. Cecil Aldi talk to me about this, how he uses those kind of expressions, as you know, or as history has shown, or from times eternal, it has been the case that. Yeah, just this is the way things are. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Rhetorical devices, which basically means there is no conversation and there's no need for a response. Yeah, not very democratic. Um, Has Zimmer reacted to her work? Yeah, I asked her about that and she told me that he hadn't, Mm. but that it really wasn't very surprising. Uh, Zimmer is fundamentally very convinced that he's Right, and any counter propositions are not going to change his worldview. So interestingly, Zimmel's obsession with keeping France French doesn't actually come out of nowhere. Mm. France has long been concerned about its birth rate. I mean, even today we get reports on how many children per woman are born each year. Yeah, the latest figures from 2019 showed that women in France were having an average of 1.8 children. Mm-mm. And public policies encourage people here to have children. Uh, the cornerstone is the allocation familiale, or family benefits or subsidies. This is money you get each month, which increases with the number of children you have. So today it begin, it kicks in with the second child and you get 135 euros a month for those two kids. Yeah, yeah. And it increases about 170 euros for each extra child. As it increases, you, you become a Famille nombreuse, so a big family. It's an official term to some extent. And the official start of these subsidies was in 1932 on March 11th, so 90 years ago this week. But they had their roots from earlier. So in 1914, at the start of World War I, army officers with children started receiving aid. By 1917, all public servants with children started receiving extra money. And after the war, though, there was a marked drop in the population. I mean, so many men mm. killed, so many soldiers, people are rebuilding their lives. Some companies started giving extra bonuses for men with kids, these so-called heads of households, mm. except it turned out that men with children were then discriminated against when they were hired because they cost more. Oh, say <laughs> so that again. Oh. Isn't it interesting? Like, it is, isn't it? We're seeing that today problem with women in that same position. So interestingly, to address this, the company started funds to which all employees contributed, which would pay out to men with children. And this inspired the government. So on March 11th, 1932, a law generalized the system. 
the so-called Loi Landry, named after the MP and economist Adolphe Landry, who presented the legislation, and it put in place a system to provide aid to sales and factory workers with at least two children. Companies were required to contribute to funds that would pay for the compensation, and it worked. I mean, France's birth rate did go up in the following decade, but the obsession with the birth rate continued. Policies throughout the 1930s encouraged more babies. There is a, a bit of an air of maybe nationalism about mm-hmm. this, isn't there? You know, maintaining some kind of pure Frenchness through encouraging people to have more French babies. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And the policies put in place were there to support children within the context of marriage, mm-hmm. of course. And, and that has remained more or less until today. So how have the allocation familiale, the, the family benefits, evolved, Sarah? So, so in 1932, the amount of aid varied. So the state mandated a minimum, but you could get more depending on your profession or what part of the country you lived in. Today, these allocations are universal. Everyone gets the same amount per child, regardless of their income. Which is problematic, isn't it, for a country like France, which prides itself on redistributing wealth to some extent in a, in a progressive way. Yeah, yeah. That universality dates back to the Second World War. After France's liberation, Charles de Gaulle wanted to support families to encourage them to replace the tens and hundreds of thousands of people killed in the war and who disappeared. The social security system was created in 1945, and that incorporated family aid the year after, which started giving out the same aid to everyone, regardless of their profession or their income. I guess that made sense at the time. Virtually everyone was struggling, Mm -hmm. so everyone could use some extra help. Yeah, yeah. And then this idea of a universal subsidy kind of was symbolic, right? It put everyone in the same boat. It was sort of healing these wounds of the Mm. division, you know, following the Vichy regime and the Nazi collaboration in France. Yeah, so very unifying. But today, of course, it makes less sense, at least economically. (laughs) Sure, yeah. And it's the socialists who've been campaigning since the 1980s to make these subsidies more progressive, kind of like housing and student aid today, even taxes, they're all based on income. Socialist President François Hollande in 2013 and 2014 did manage to impose an income cap. Um, It reduced the aid if you made more than 75 or 80,000 euros a year, which is a lot of money in France, so effectively not much of a cap. Yeah, but there has been pushback, hasn't there, from Mm -hmm. the right, many of whom especially on the Catholic right, uh, have uh, large families and therefore benefit from this aid, even if maybe they don't always need it. Sure, sure. And in this election campaign, you see the Républicain right-wing candidate Valérie Pécresse, who herself is very Catholic. She's promising to roll back limits to the aid. And there are other subsidies, aren't there, that are intended to address the inequality in this universal system, like aid for hiring childcare for lower incomes or extra money available for single parents. But the universal child benefit has remained. And birth rates have been slipping again over the last few years, haven't they? And COVID uh, has compounded that. Sure, sure. So policymakers are considering other options rather than just throwing money at the problem. Um, There is an awareness, for example, of the need for more childcare options. Uh, Things also like the increase in paternity leave that was passed recently, which has now gone up to 28 days, or the opening of medically assisted procreation to all women, regardless of their marital status. That all might contribute to more French babies being born. Or perhaps maybe we should count more on immigration rather than birth rate for upping the French population. (laughs) That's a hot political potato for sure.
So let's talk energy. There's a lot of concern about energy prices that are soaring. Prices were actually even going up in France even before the war between Russia and Ukraine, which is now putting Europe's supply of natural gas into question. Mm, Europeans are looking to alternative sources. Here in France, the economy minister has even raised the idea of maybe chipping in to reduce our energy consumption, maybe turning down the, the heat by one degree this winter, things like that. Yeah, and France, though, is interestingly positioned with nuclear. So gas imports from Russia represent only about 20% of France's energy mix. This is compared to more than 50% for Germany. And that certainly gives a boost to nuclear, doesn't it? Which Mm -hmm. Macron has been actively pushing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, recently we saw him backing a European Commission proposal to label nuclear energy as a green investment. Some climate activists have called this greenwashing, pointing to the inherent non-greenness of uranium extraction, also the fact that nuclear energy produces waste and the risks of accidents and radioactive contamination. But Macron's argument is that the immediate climate concerns of reducing greenhouse gas emissions should be addressed with nuclear. Here he is in February presenting France's nuclear rebirth. La France fait le choix du climat en se donnant les moyens d'atteindre ses objectifs de réduction des émissions de gaz à effet de serre. France is making the choice for the climate, he says, by giving itself the means to reach its greenhouse gas emissions goals and to be one of the biggest countries to drop its dependence on fossil fuels. Now, nuclear energy does not produce as many emissions as fossil fuels, but Marie Toussaint disagrees that it's the right thing to do to use nuclear as a stopgap, and especially to promote it as a green investment, as it would be as part of the European Commission's taxonomy proposal, as it's being called. A lawyer and climate activist, she's a member of the European Parliament for the Green Party. Her take on the situation is that France, and Macron in particular, is trying to get out of its climate obligations by banking on nuclear, which she says won't solve the problem and will only make things worse. The French government is late, is late in its climate policy as an overall discussion and goals. And what now, what they say is that they want to develop nuclear energy to keep our emissions quite low, because indeed we have few CO2 emissions because of nuclear power. However, it is a problem when you look at the timing to develop nuclear energy. There won't be nuclear plants, new nuclear plants, before 2040 or 45, whereas we need to reduce our CO2 emissions by 2030. To reduce our emissions by 2030, we need to have energy efficiency, renewables, changes in the agriculture sector, and renovation of housing. This is what needs to be done right now, and this is where the money should go. When we're looking at energy sources, you know, there's no good option for the moment. We either have this nuclear energy, which is dangerous, is complicated to extract, and and has problems, but we also have fossil fuels, which immediately are creating greenhouse gases and are heating the planet. If the immediate concern is reducing fossil fuel emissions. Why is nuclear not an option now while we're developing alternative energy sources? What's most uh, striking in this uh, taxonomy is that they want and they propose to label nuclear but also gas at the same moment as green investments. So we will invite the private sector, but also public money to finance uh, the development of nuclear and gas. And this really has to be acknowledged. 
the idea of gas is that it's less harmful than coal, which is a big focus for a lot of, especially Eastern European countries. I mean, that's the argument. Yeah, but the International Agency for Energy, which is not um, a place for climate activists, <laughs> is requiring uh, from the countries to stop investing in fossil fuels whatsoever, even gas. Um, if we want to respect the Paris Agreement and the goal set up in the Paris Agreement, we need to stop exploiting, but also exploring for fossil fuels right now, not tomorrow, but now. So this is crazy to want to label gas as a green investment uh, today. Uh, this, if, if this should have been done, it should have been done 20 or 30 years ago, but not now. So what's happening, particularly with France? Obviously, France has a long history with nuclear. What's going on? I'll, I'll get back to the issue of timing. The French government is saying we don't need to change anything in France because we have nuclear energy. The French government doesn't require any efforts from any economic sector. So they don't have to change anything in the transport sector. They don't have to change anything in the building sector. They don't have to change anything in the industrial sector as long as they say we will invest in nuclear energy. I believe that what the governments and especially Macron wants to do is to send out the message to the people and to um, the companies that we can keep on producing more and consuming more and that we're going to save the climate and that it's okay and we can stop there. What they want to do is not to have to change anything else. But so looking at, for example, Germany, right, that is phasing out nuclear, what's happening now is there's an increasing use of fossil fuels as they're trying to, you know, fill the gaps Um, of their energy needs and as renewables are, are developed. And from what I understand right now, Germany emits about twice as much CO2 per capita as France does. Isn't that a little scary? Isn't that a little like, hmm, maybe they're not going the right way if we're trying to reduce greenhouse gas emissions? Well, the truth about Germany is that they are phasing out nuclear and coal energy in a really quick way. They still need a bit of gas. Um, this is true. And they are planning to get out of gas as well. Um, but what we need to understand is that Germany is changing and has imposed a real change in its uh, energy consumption and production and also in its industrial and economic system. Whereas France hasn't moved at all since the 1990s. France has Yes, quite low uh, greenhouse gas emissions compared to other European countries. But the carbon print per capita in France hasn't moved, whereas it has reduced in every single other member state of the European Union. France is viewing nuclear energy as kind of a shield, not to change anything, whereas we could have done since the 1990s at least efforts in the transport sector, in the building sectors and in the agriculture sector. But we are not moving because we rely on the fact that our greenhouse gas emission is quite low because of the nuclear energy. So that the nuclear uh, is actually really preventing from any action in any other sector, which is also a problem for France because If every country is moving, is becoming pioneer, then France stays just the same as in the 1990s, which is not really good. And if you look at the future, you want France to be also pioneer in some climate areas, um, but it, it's not coming. It's not changing. So um, to, to move a little to politics then, I mean, how much of a coincidence or not is um, France's push to get this taxonomy labeling nuclear as green? 
How much is it linked to the fact that this is an election year? Macron is running for re-election um, with this proposal to develop nuclear, supposedly to protect the climate, right? But he knows that he cannot finance its nuclear program if other member states don't come at his help, because nuclear energy is also really, really, really expensive. That's why he's pushing so much for nuclear energy to be in the taxonomy. So they want to show to the French population that they are able to have such a big program of nuclear energy with the financing, not of the French people, but of the European Union. And that's basically the goal. You see this is a very directly linked to the campaign. Well, to the campaign, yes, but also to their political program. And as I said, the political program is not to shake up anything, but rather to keep on um, the benefits and the economic system as it is. So there is hope for a change of uh, French government with the presidential elections, but also the legislative elections behind. I believe there is hope as well, because neither the citizens and the citizens' movements or the investors are agreeing with this view of the taxonomy and what green investments must be. And we hear more and more investors saying that they want to have real green tools for real green investments. And that's something that we haven't seen before. And I do believe that if the taxonomy goes on, it won't be used so much by private actors. The European Investment Bank, for instance, doesn't want to use this delegated act, but wants to use other green labels. Um, if the private sector wants to go further, they can do it. They don't have to use the taxonomy. Est-ce qu'on a constaté quelque chose au-dessus de la France Non, parce que les vents ne vont pas dans cette direction. Là, les vents tournent dans le sens inverse. Il n'y a pas lieu du tout de s'inquiéter. We've come to the end of Spotlight on France, which is a production of the English service of Radio France International. This episode was mixed by Cécile Pompeiani. If you want to get in touch, then why not send us an email at spotlight.france at rfi.fr. Or you can find us on Instagram, Spotlight on France. Find previous episodes at rfienglish.com or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back in two weeks on Thursday, March the 24th. Bye, Alison. Bye-bye, Sarah. Bye.